Welcome, my pretties. Please do come inside, grab a beer, and have a seat, because things are about to get spooky. Hello and welcome to the Spook Inn. I'm your host, Saf, and this is the show where I drink beer and talk about horror movies. Today on the show, I'm drinking Bruce's Groovy Brew from Scarlet Lane Brewing Company, and I'm spooking with Ghostface. Hello, Sydney. Well, the reason I'm doing Bruce's Groovy Brew is because I'm not doing an Evil Dead episode this season. This beer would have been perfect for that, but that film is name-checked at least once in the Scream franchise. Also, Bruce and Nev share the last, the same last name. Coincidence? Yes, but any reason to have a Scarlet Lane beer on this show is perfect because it is the official beer of horror. This beer comes in at 5% ABV, 35 IBUs, and it says it is an ash-kicking pale ale with Meridian, Citra, and Horizon Hops. On the can, we've got this delightful blue background um, with, I think that's Butler University back there because this was brewed in collaboration with Bruce Campbell because he came and did a show on Butler's campus. It was like Bruce's Groovy Show or something like that. I'm not sure, but I didn't go see it. I wish I did. It was like a game show type thing and Scarlet Lane, since they're official beer of horror, they made a special beer for the event. But also on the can, we have Bruce driving his iconic 1973 Oldsmobile from the Evil Dead series. It's referred to as the Delta or the Classic, but it's a Delta 88 Royale owned by Ash, serving as Ash's main mode of transportation throughout the Evil Dead franchise. It pops up, I believe, in every one of Sam Raimi's movies, along with Bruce Campbell most of the time. Not together, but Bruce Campbell and the car will most likely make an appearance in a naval dead movie which is pretty cool it's also kind of jib jabby style art with bruce campbell having this giant head on a little body and i like how the car is kind of shiny and bruce's like the name of the beer is shiny but the rest is pretty matte finished it makes it pop a little bit as for the beer it's a nice orangey color the color probably falls between a clay face and a ben Grimm, which is number 13 Morph Ball Orange, 13 being the scariest number, so perfect. Also, 35 IBUs, that is 35 millimeter on our geek scale, which is the film gauge most commonly used for motion pictures, including horror pictures. Smell-wise, I'm getting like that typical pale ale smell, but not a whole lot of the citrus or meridian hops. Just a little bit of like a sweet smell along with the, the, like that typical pale ale profile now i'm gonna take my first sip it's really good really smooth and crisp tastes clean it's a little bitter on that back end but there's a nice hop forwardness to it overall it's pretty good it's almost kind of lagery tasting as well which i imagine ash to be a lager pilsner guy but it's a really good pale ale nice solid pale ale it does kind of taste a little flat or something but i was swishing it around a lot in the glass trying to get the smell so i may have just shook it up too much let's see what our buddies on untapped have to say i see out of 72 ratings it has a 3.76 which is a pretty solid score for a pale ale i don't have any friends that checked it in so let me look if there's any good comments from the other riffraff that haven't decided to be my friend yet a lot of 375s which makes sense joe mama says i like it good flavor and not very bitter he gave it a four 
Megan D. Megan D. Stallion says, This is pretty tasty. Last of the beer I bought back from Indy for Kurt. And she gave it a 4.25, it looks like. Derek Kalner says, Chainsaw in one hand, brew in the other. He gave it a 4. Maybe one more if I can find it. And then I'll check her in myself. All right. Last one from Kurt B. Has a citrusy hop to it. Tastes good. 375. I kind of stuck with the consensus with untapped. And I also gave it a 375. Pretty much matching their 3.76. And I said, it's a really decent pale ale with a citrusy hop profile. I would recommend if you are into that type of thing. And it's something I, I would like to have on hand all the time, just as like a easy drink. And it's kind of a lawnmower beer, 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 lawnmower beer because it's only 5%. It's not overly bitter, overly hoppy, just a nice crisp beer that'll cool you down when you on a hot day like today. What's your favorite scary movie? All right, a little bit about the Scream franchise. Starting in 1996, we have Scream 1. The film focuses on teenager Sidney Prescott as she comes under attack from a mysterious character dubbed Ghostface while dealing with the anniversary of her mother's murder. A year later, we have Scream 2. Set in 1997, the film again focuses on the character of Sidney Prescott, now a college student, as a series of copycat crimes begin. The killers again using the disguise of Ghostface. Then in the year 2000, we have Scream 3. The film focuses on Sidney Prescott, who faces a new Ghostface killer, and the truth about her mother that led to the start of the Ghostface killings. Then we get a long break until... 2011 when we get Scream 4. The film takes place 10 years after the previous film and once again follows Sydney Prescott as she returns to Woodsboro, the fictional town where Scream takes place. On the last stop of her book tour and encounters another set of murders and a killer, again using the guise of Ghostface. Then another long break until 2022 we get just simply titled Scream. The film takes place 25 years after the original Woodsboro murders when yet another Ghostface appears and begins targeting a group of teenagers who are each somehow linked to the original killings. Then just one year later we get Scream 6. Following the latest Ghostface killings, the four survivors leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City. This is the first film without Sidney Prescott. We also have Scream the TV series... Scream is a serialized anthology series that follows a group of teenagers being stalked and targeted by a masked serial killer. The first two seasons set in the fictional town of Lakewood follow the story of Emma Duvall, a teenage girl who is linked to the horrific events of the town's past. As the killer's main obsession starts to take a hold after a brutal murder in the present, Emma finds herself at the center of imminent peril with both her family and friends in danger. She sets out to uncover the tr- town's dark mysteries and unmask the identity of the Lakewood Slasher. The third season follows the story of Dion Elliott, a local football star in Atlanta, who is tormented by the events of his tragic past. As Ghostface uses the darkest secrets against him and continues with a killing spree, Dion not only stands to lose his future, but also the lives of his friends and family members who might end up being potential victims of the notorious and infamous killer. 
the show the first two seasons I, I watched all three seasons the first two seasons focusing on the main one group and then the third season changes and focuses on a completely unrelated story in an unrelated town but the killer uses the same mask in all three seasons and it's not the mask we know from the movies which i think is a mistake the new mask is really stupid looking it kind of looks porcelain like a doll mask but the mouth is a little stretched open like the scream mask i don't really like that new mask but this the movie or the tv show is fun if you like the movies it's just like a drawn out story similar to the movie uh but i've the teenagers feel more like teenagers they're dealing with high school more and we get to know a little all the characters a little bit more just because it's like an eight hour story as opposed to an hour and a half and each episode has like one person dying and it's like a mystery we're trying to solve over the course of the season as to who the killer might be i think they did a pretty good job at least with that first season Second season's a little weird, and the third season is interesting as well. I also love how this franchise comments on horror movies, specifically slashers, and each movie explains the rules to us. There's always one scene where, in the first few movies, it's Randy. In the last two movies, it's Randy's niece. And then in the fourth movie, it's just some film nerds. But it's always somebody explaining the rules and what to look out for and giving us our list of suspects. The second adds sequels to the formula, the third adds trilogies, the fourth adds remakes and reboots, five adds legacy sequels, and then six adds sequels to legacy sequels and franchises in general, all to the list of rules and explains how each one is a little bit different. Don't hang up on me. Now before we get to the rankings of the movies let's talk about the best cold opens each one of these movies ends or begins with a cold open that has some random character being killed and it's a formula set up by the first movie and each movie attempts to heighten it in a way or divert your expectations so i mean saying that the best cold open is from the first movie it's drew barrymore it's hard to top the original. Drew Barrymore was a big part of the advertising and is even prominently featured on the poster. Then to kill her off in the first five minutes was a huge shock to most and perfectly establishes the tone of the film and uh, allowing us to know that no one is safe. We think she's going to be a, probably the final girl and she dies in the first five minutes. It's it's mind-blowing and it's it really does a great job of introducing us to this new franchise. Also, I read that Drew Barrymore was originally cast as the Nev Campbell role, but I think she it was her idea to... I, and I think there was like a scheduling conflict, so she wasn't going to be able to be in the movie, but it was her idea to do this like beginning opening scene, or to be the character that dies in the opening scene. Very smart. Number two is actually from Scream 2. It's the Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps in the movie theater scene. It heightened, it's a heightened version of the cold opening from the first film. It now includes two victims being killed in public. It also introduces us to the Stab franchise, which is the source of a lot of meta commentary throughout the franchise. And it's one of my favorite parts of these films. Just how like the Scream films exist in this world as Stab movies. And they're 
basically fictionalized versions of the fictionalized events that we see. So it's like a hat on a hat. I, I love all that. And then just the like the brutal killing of both of the characters, but specifically Jada Pinkin. She gets stabbed like 30 times and she's like screaming for help in front of this theater of people. And it's really a, th- a thing they probably wouldn't do today just because like so many shootings and stuff have happened in theaters. But it's very effective in this movie. Next on my list is from Scream 4. It's the one that's a bunch of stab misdirects. So, like, someone dies, and then you realize, oh, this is just the opening to a stab movie. And now, let's see what the real killing is. Oh, that's also a stab movie, and it happens, like, three times. It's perhaps the most meta opening in the franchise history. It starts off with a fairly traditional cold open featuring Lucy Hale and Sheena Grimes, which is then revealed to actually be the opening sequence for an in-universe movie, Stab 6. We then get another sequence... This time with even bigger stars, Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell, who are watching Stab 6, only to be revealed that this is the opening for Stab 7. Then that's when we get the actual opening sequence with two young girls, Amy Teagarden and Britt Robertson, talking about the logic of the Stab movies. And I guess one of them involves time travel. That's very interesting to me. And I would love to see the Stab movies realized in some form, whether that be a book or films of themselves. And the fact that they should really be more aware since they all live in Woodsboro, after all. And I just love learning about the intricacies of the Stab franchise. Next on my list, number four, is from Scream 6. So there will be spoilers for Scream 6. It opens with Samara Weaving and Tony Ravioli, as I call him, but it's Revolori. You'll know him as Flash Thompson from the latest Spider-Man series. And he does, he's in a bunch of M. Night Shyamalan stuff and some Wes Anderson stuff. He's pretty famous. You'll know him if you Google him. Uh, The misdirect of Ghostface taking off his mask and then being killed by a different Ghostface is a fun and original twist. I was hoping it happened a couple more times. But that might be too similar to the Scream 4 opening. If the second ghost face was then killed by a third ghost face, and then a fourth ghost face, it could go on like 20 minutes. But I think that might have been compared to the Scream 4 with all the stab movie misdirects. The number five on my list is from Scream 5. It's the one with Jenna Ortega. And uh, it's basically a remake of the Drew Barrymore cold open. Only this time she survives and it's actually a main part of the movie that this girl is now a main character in the series. It's a good scene and the updated dialogue and technology is cool, but it's all just feels too familiar to the Drew Barrymore opening. It's smart in a way how they update everything like with the you can unlock doors with your phone and how cell phones exist and have to update it for the 2020 audience, but it just is very similar to the Drew Barrymore one. Then last, number 6 on my list comes from Scream 3. It's the one with Cotton Weary, a.k.a. Liev Schreiber. This is the first time the cold open features a known character from the previous films, but this character is a known asshole, so we don't even care that he dies. It also features Ghostface's new ability to perfectly mimic other characters' voices, which is the worst thing from the entire franchise. And not to spoil it, but Scream 3 is kind of the lowest rated or uh, ranked movie on most lists. And you will see that it is also on mine. Another thing that every movie in this franchise does is have like a long reveal of the killer who gives their motivations. So I ranked that as well. Who has the best killer motivation? I guess my list isn't ranked at the moment. Uh, Let me just list them 
all of the nominees, and then I'll tell you what the best ones are. From the first one, we have Billy Loomis, played by Skeet Ulrich, and Stu Mocker, played by Matthew Lillard. Billy is a horror movie obsessed and wants revenge on Sid because her mom broke up his family. Stu is just the best friend that's along for the ride. Number two, we have Nancy Loomis, played by Laurie Metcalf, and Mickey, played by Timothy Oliphant. Nancy wants revenge on Sid because she killed her son. Mickey just wants to be a famous serial killer. In number three, we have Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley. Sid's long-lost brother, who has apparently been pulling the strings since the beginning. I always hate that, so, I mean, that's a little spoiler for where this is going to fall. I just don't like how they, when they introduce a character five movies in, and we realize, oh, he's been, I mean, this is the third movie, but you know what I'm saying. They introduce a character way later, and they're like, this guy has always been the bad guy. He's manipulated everything in the first movies. We just never saw him or heard from him until now. In the fourth movie, Jill Roberts, played by Emma Roberts, and Charlie Walker, played by Rory Calkin. Jill is jealous of her aunt Sid's fame, so she masterminds everything to be the new Sid. Charlie is just her love interest. Number five, we got Richie Kirsch played by Jack Quaid, and Amber Freeman, played by Mickey Madison. Richie and Amber are obsessed stab fans that hate the trajectory of the franchise, and they attempt to make the ultimate sequel in real life. Then in number six, Detective Bailey, played by Dermot Mulroney, Ethan Landry, played by Jack Champion, and Quinn Bailey, played by Liana Liberato. The killers are Richie's dad, brother, and sister who want revenge for his death. If you kill my kid, you die. Is a quote from the t- Detective Bailey earlier in the movie, so that was immediately suspicious to me, and I assumed he was the killer. And I assumed that Richie was his son. I didn't put together the other couple of things, though. So who had the best motivation? That's tough. I get Nancy Loomis and Detective Bailey wanting to avenge their kids. So those are kind of even. Billy Loomis, I hate to say, I don't really understand his motivation. I guess Sid's mom broke up his family, so you want Sid to pay even though she had nothing to do with it. Roman, as I said, I don't really care about that guy. I like Jack Quaid, and that whole reasoning was interesting. But I think Jill Roberts is the best twist. So Scream 4, when we realize, oh, she actually just wants to be Sydney and she's orchestrating this whole thing so she can kind of have that role in the new Scream or Stab franchise. I like her motivation. So I'm going to say tied for first is Nancy Loomis and Detective Bailey for wanting to avenge their kid's death. Then I'm going to say Jill Roberts and Scream 4, then Scream 5, then Scream 1, then Scream 3. But let's rank the movies. This is pretty easy. Scream 1 is the best. Scream 2 is pretty close but it's in second place then scream five i think that's a good kind of reboot to the story scream four is fourth scream six is fifth and scream third is last i told you not to hang up on me now we got to talk about the kills this movie is known for having some extremely violent kills a lot of stabbings mostly people get stabbed with like a hunting knife that's like the Ghostfacer's tool of choice. So let's look at the kill counts. Scream 1 has 7 kills. Scream 2 has 10. Scream 3 has 10. Scream 4 has 11. Scream 5 has 8. 
and Scream 6 has 13, totaling 59 kills from Ghostface, averaging about 10 per movie at 9.83. But who is the most effective killer? Because each movie has, except for one, all of the movies have more than one Ghostface killer. There's some guesswork involved because the killer is always masked, but there are some clues in this film, so I feel comfortable with these numbers. So let's reveal who is our best killer, or most efficient killer, let's put it that way. Jason Carver and Bailey Quinn, or Quinn Bailey, from Scream 6, they both only killed one person, so they're kind of losers when it comes to killing. Mrs. Loomis in Scream 2 has only killed one person that we know of. Ethan Landry from Scream 6 only kills two people. Richie from Scream 5 only kills two people. Stu only killed two people. Charlie Walker from Scream 4 killed three people. Amber from Scream 5 killed four people. Billy killed four people. Mickey from Scream 2, he killed seven. He did most of the work. Nancy was probably just there pulling the strings. And Mickey wanted to be famous killer, so he had to do a lot of the work. Then uh, Detective Bailey in Scream 6 killed six people. Jill Roberts in Scream 4, she killed seven people. But our best killer was Roman in Scream 3. He killed nine people, and he's the only one that didn't have a partner. So that makes sense. He did all the killings in that one. But what are the best kills per movie, you might ask? For Scream 1, I went with Tatum Riley, a.k.a. Rose McGowan. She has the garage door death. That's a very iconic death in the franchise, and it's also parodied pretty well in the scary movie one. I almost went with Stu being crushed by the TV, but there are all these rumors that he survived or he might reappear in this franchise. I don't think he will. I think he is dead, but uh, that's why I, I didn't want to go with Stu, just in case they decide to bring him back. In Scream 2, I went with Haley. Uh, I love the scene where Sid and Haley are locked up in the backseat of that cop car, and the only way out is to climb through a small hole to the front seat and then over Ghostface's lap. They make it out only for Haley to be dumb, return to the car, and then be killed. It's like a very tense scene, and for them to make it out only for her to just walk back and die. Pretty cool. A big shock. In Scream 3, I went with Tom Prince. This is the one where, like, a fax comes through or something, and they're all in this big mansion. Or not big mansion, but this nice Hollywood house. And they, they're out by the pool, and he runs back into the house just to see what it says, and the house explodes. Huge explosion in a series that's mostly known for people being stabbed. It's a pretty surprising death. Number four is Jill Roberts. When Sydney Prescott and Gail Weathers, I believe, fuck her up. Sydney has this awesome line that says, never fuck with the original. In Scream 5, I went with Wes. This is a good scene. There's a bunch of diversions that he's like opening cabinets and you expect Ghostface to be there when he turns around. It happens like several times in this like few minute long scene. You keep expecting Ghostface to pop up. When uh, Wes goes to look out the door, front door, you expect maybe Ghostface will be out there. And then he turns around and finally Ghostface is standing right behind him and he stabs him in the throat. It's a really tense scene and then we are treated to a touching tr- tribute to Wes Craven who had directed all the prior films and recently passed away. There's like a memorial service for Wes and it says like for Wes or whatever for the character Wes but also we know it's for Wes Craven. And then finally in Scream 6 I really liked Annika's death. 
This is a good scene where they're like trying to get across the ladder to the apartment across the alleyway. And she's already been stabbed. She's the last one across the ladder. Of course she's going to die. We all know it. And we're just waiting for it to happen. And then Ghostface ends up just shaking the ladder until she falls and has this really gruesome death and splatters on the pavement below. Now let's talk about the music and taglines from the Scream franchise. This song is Trouble in Woodsboro from Scream 1. A few of the taglines from this film are From the first name in suspense comes the last word in fear. Referring to Wes Craven. Also, someone is playing a deadly game. Someone who has seen way too many scary movies. Another one is, he's taken his love of fear one step too far. Then, I'll be right back. Another one is, don't answer the phone, don't open the door, don't try to escape. Along similar lines, don't answer the door, don't leave the house, don't answer the phone, but most of all, don't scream. Another one, someone has taken their love of scary movies one step too far. Similar to an earlier one, solving the mystery is going to be murder. Make your last breath count. Now someone is victim and someone is a suspect. Now everybody is a victim and everybody is a suspect. This next song is called Sid's House, again from Scream 1. A little bit about the composer. Scream score was provided by fledgling composer Marco Beltrami, his first time scoring a feature film. This is also a song known as Sid's, Sidney's Lament, I believe. It's kind of uh, Sidney's theme song. Craven's assistant, Julie Pleck, had requested input on composers who were new, fresh, and wonderful. And was given Bartolami's name by several people. Beltrami was contracted for samples of his work. Craven, impressed by what he heard, requested Beltrami come to the set to view the opening 13 minutes of the film containing the introduction and the death of Barrymore's character. Beltrami was hired to score the entire film on the basis of a sample he made for this scene. This one's called Backdoor Gale. It's kind of more of Gale's theme for the franchise. Beltrami had no prior experience working in horror, Craven and editor Patrick Lussier advised him on how to deliver music that would raise the tension and how to use said, use strings to punctuate the more intense moments. Craven wanted the music to intentionally raise tension during scenes where audience expectations were already raised by their experience of previous horror films. The volume had be would be raised to indicate the killer is hiding behind a door but nothing would be present upon its opening. And here is the in credits theme for the first screen. 
There's the Sydney thing. It's kind of like the little chant. Beltrami decided to intentionally disregard conventional horror score styles. He approached the film as a western, taking influence from Ennio Morricone, a prolific composer of many westerns. When scoring the theme for the character of Dewey, Beltrami approached him as quirky Wild West Sheriff using a Morricone-style guitar accompaniment. Sidney Prescott's theme, titled Sidney's Lament, features a female choral arrangement expressing sorrow concerning the character's situation, and we can hear that right now. Butrami states that the voice spoke for the character, lamenting the loss of her mother. Christian Clemson of film tracks called the haunting vocals of the track the voice of the franchise. The song was used throughout the film's sequels. Speaking of sequels, let's move on to Scream 2. This is the opening theme. A few taglines. There's a killer on campus making more calls, making more kills. Rules for a sequel. One, the body count is always bigger. The death scenes are much more elaborate. Scream again. Someone has taken their love of sequels one step too far. It's showtime. Gorier, sexier, funnier. Again, you can hear like the western like twanginess to that one. That's pretty good. This one is introducing Gale. So it's very similar to the Gale song from the previous song I played. But it, it kind of opens it up a lot more. And this is kind of the theme we hear in future sequels. Uh, Baltarami returned for Scream 2, leading the score through, though there would be a late inclusion by Danny Elfman in the form of a choral track to Sandra Aria. In addition, experts from the score of Broken Arrow by Hans Zimmer appeared in the film, in particular guitar work by Dwayne Eddy, for the character Dewey, replacing many of the characters related tracks from the original school Scream score. Beltrami later explained that the Zimmer piece was used as a scratch track for test screening purposes before the score was finalized. Let's just skip to that track now. Here's Dewey's theme. It definitely has that Wild West vibe that we were talking about earlier. But it also kind of fits with the previous song we were just listening to, so it's interesting that it was pretty much ripped from a different movie. The test audience reaction to its influenced the studio to keep the Zimmer piece, introducing reducing Dewey's theme, which Baltrami had composed to fill its place, to minor use during the serious scenes involving the character. You even get that, like, whistle that you get in westerns. Alright, let's move on to Killing Theories. This is kind of the theme song we get when 
whoever, Randy or whoever it may be, is revealing like the list of sub- suspects and the rules for the sequels and whatnot. Moving on to Scream 3. Uh, the final scream is going to be the loudest. The third and final chapter in the trilogy that made you laugh and made you scream. The millennium starts with scream. The new millennium begins in panic. Scream 3, the scare of the millennium. So it's a lot to do with it being the year 2000. Well, let's move on to another song, Sid's Killer, Sid Kills Killer. So this is the song that we have in the final showdown with Ghostface. Very tense, a lot of action, but also fear. a good one let's move on i got dewey and the gales so it's kind of dewey and gale became an item at some point in the series and their theme songs kind of meshed together um i still have a few more taglines for scream three in order for sydney prescott to survive the future she must look to the past So it's kind of Gale's theme, but with a twang of the Dewey's theme. Very interesting. Rules of a trilogy. Chapter 1 sets the rules. Chapter 2 bends the rules, but the final forgets the rules. Someone has taken their love of trilogies one step too far. So, yeah, horror movies one step too far. Sequels one step... Continuing that line. The most terrifying scream is always the last. The last scream is always the scariest. Welcome to the final act. This is a song called Sid's Theme Reprise. The best scream is always the last one. Just hope the last one isn't your own. There's just some secrets you can't reveal till the very end. Obey the rules of the trilogy or die. For Scream 3, Beltrami employed seven orchestrators to aid in scoring the extensive orchestral accompaniment featured in the film's score. Additionally, he experimented with the new styles of sound production by recording instruments in abnormal circumstances. This is Woodsboro 2010 from Scream 4. I'll get to that in a moment. Let me finish this paragraph. Uh, by recording instruments in abnormal circumstances such as inserting objects into a piano and recording at various velocities to create a distorted, unnatural sound and modifying the results electronically. So this is an updated version of the Woodsboro Anthem. It's got like a ticking clock in there. 
Now this is Gale and Ghostface. Again, it's kind of like Sid in, in the Kills a Killer or whatever. It's very intense, high energy, scary. The tagline for Scream 4, new decade, new rules. Beltrami returned to compose this one as well. I have no more information regarding that. But I have one more song from this movie. This is Red Right Hand from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. This song appears in five out of the six Scream movies. I think maybe Scream 3 is the only one it's not in. It's kind of synonymous with Scream at this point. Like, I look for it every time a new, I see a new one of these movies. I'm like, okay, where's Red Right Hand going to be? It's just a good song. I don't know why it fits in with this series, but it it really does. I love that bell, and like he kind of sounds angry when he says "red right hand." All right, let's move on to Scream Five. This one's called New Horizons. Um, some taglines for this movie include it's always someone you know the killer is on this poster and don't see it alone this song's kind of unfamiliar it's kind of more hopeful sounding and less spooky piano like is nice and it sounds new let's go on to history repeats and see if it continues this trend We do have a new composer this time around. It's Brian Tyler, who has popped up a lot in this series, I believe. He scored the soundtrack for this film. Tyler had previously worked with Matt Bottinelli Oplin and Tyler Gillette on Ready or Not, and would be replacing Marco Beltrami, who composed the score for the previous four films. Brian Tyler also scored Alien vs. Predator Requiem, so you can listen to my Alien and Predator episode for more information on him. But this feels more like the Scream theme. Still got that kind of humming and chanting, but it's it's got that... Which is kind of the Scream theme. Kind of Sydney's theme as well.
And lastly for this film, I have a song just called Ghostface. So this kind of feels more like Gale vs. Ghostface or whatever. It's still got that more intense action-y sound to it. But overall, the music is a little more understated in this film compared to the first three or four. Let's move on to Scream 6 and see... I think we got Brian Tyler back again. This song is called Ghostface History. Taglines for this movie include New York, New Rules, and In a City of Millions, No One Hears You Scream. In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. I think that's what they're doing with that. This one's pretty creepy. It still doesn't sound like a Scream movie too much. But they've gone in a different direction these last couple, and it's kind of a new thing. Sydney's not even in this one, so we can't have Sydney's lament. Another song from this movie is Haunted. The film is scored by Brian Tyler, returning from the previous installment, and Sven Faulkner joined Tyler to co-score this film. Faulkner was born in Gent, Belgium. He is a Los Angeles-based composer for film and television who has contributed to films like Top Gun Maverick and Black Widow. Now this song is called Still Alive. It's from uh, Demi Lovato, and it plays over the credits, the closing credits of the movie. It's a very catchy song. I don't, it doesn't really scream, scream, (laughs) but I like the song. this go through the chorus and then I'll move on all right this is my last song it's red right hand again obviously but this is the scream 3 version so it is in scream 3 maybe it's not in scream 4 I I don't remember which one it's not in but it's not in one and this is a little slightly different version. The, the, I think the little, that background music is a little bit different, a little bit creepier. But uh, I wanted to play this while I talk about Scream TV series a little bit. I don't have any music from that, but I have a couple taglines. Everyone has secrets. Everyone tells lies. Everyone is fair game. That's from Scream 1, or Season 1. And then season two is just trust nothing, trust us. 
Jeremy Zuckerman is an American composer of concert music, film and television music, music of modern dance, and experimental music. He's best known for as the composer for the animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and the sequel series The Legend of Korra, but he also was the composer on Scream, the TV series. But that'll do it for this episode of Spookin' with Saf. Uh, let me close this song out. Now I declare this meeting of Spookin' with Saf closed. Until next time, drink up and pleasant dreams, everyone. <laughs> Again, I'll cut you like a fish, understand?